Welcome to the Brand Spanking New Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Adams. As of this glorious Monday morning, NBA refs have a hard time understanding when a basketball goes through a hoop, the Houston Texans look like they're matching up against Globo Gym, and Melo has a deal for the rest of the season. But we begin with the three most important things that rocked our world and changed our perspective over the past seven days, or more specifically, the best of last week. First, the 2019 college football playoff rankings have been broadcast for all the world to see on Sunday morning. And to no surprise, LSU, Ohio State, Clemson, and Oklahoma have locked up the top four seeds. Ohio State and LSU were obvious choices, as each of them have obliterated multiple top ten opponents all season and won their respective conference championships with unblemished records. Ohio State did need a second-half resurgence to come back against the Wisconsin Badgers. Meanwhile, LSU was notified by PETA that their quarterback is facing potential animal cruelty charges after he beat down multiple Bulldogs in the SEC championship win over Georgia. Oklahoma's in the playoff for the combination of the following three factors. First, the previously mentioned animal rights abuse campaign initiated by LSU. Second, Oregon winning the Pac-12 title by making the University of Utah look like a band of misfit toys never taught the concept of controlling the line of scrimmage. And third, the college playoff committee's misunderstood love affair with the Big 12, which happens to be the only conference that is yet to win a college football playoff game in its now six-year existence. Now, don't get me wrong. I feel that Oklahoma should be in the top four, but only because everyone else has played themselves out of contention. Oklahoma hasn't done anything meaningful this entire season except for beating a Baylor team that looks more like a fixer-upper rambler being run by Chip and Joanna Gaines. The final team in the playoff is defending champion Clemson, who was escorted to the ball by Bronco Mendenhall and the Virginia Cavaliers, who shockingly did not give a goodnight kiss at the doorstep after the ACC championship. How dare they betray them like that? Clemson is in because they are A, undefeated, B, the champion of a Power 5 conference, and C, last year's national title winner. Dabo Sweeney said last week after beating South Carolina, quote, they don't want us in there anyway. We would drop to 20 if we lost, you know. Georgia loses to this very same team, and the next day it's, how do we keep Georgia in it? We win against the team that beat South Carolina, and it's, how can we get Clemson out? It's the dadgummest thing. No, Dabo. The dadgummest thing is that your Clemson team is being elevated to the elite levels of competitive football when your signature win this season was against number 24, Virginia? Yeah, Clemson may have had the fifth highest point differential in FBS history, but of course they're going to blow out their opponents Wake Forest, Boston College, and Georgia Tech. Dadgum, Jimbo, are you surprised that the college football playoff committee doesn't respect you for blowing out FCS opponents Wofford and Charlotte? You're feeling disrespected because the rest of the country wasn't in awe of your two-touchdown win against 7-5 and five Texas A&M, an Aggie team that LSU beat last week 50-7? to seven? Why should the world fall all over themselves and worship the ground your Baywatch bodyguard slash TikTok teenage girl lookalike quarterback Trevor Lawrence steps upon when his shining moment comes against 5-7 and seven Syracuse? Why is Vegas making them a three-point favorite over Ohio State when the toughest team they faced this season had a three-game losing streak? That's absurd. Dadgum asinine, Dabo. Of course you're the number three seed in the playoffs. What do you expect when the league you're running in looks more like the South Carolina State High School playoffs? If you are legitimately being disrespected, then show us how good you are when for the first time all season you'll be playing a defense actually ranked in the top 50. Second, I know every sportscaster in the country has taken extreme pleasure in watching the Cleveland Browns crash and burn after all the hype they had. 
As of this morning, sources have emerged saying that the drama queen Odell Beckham Jr. is either debating surgery for a sports hernia or already contacting coaches from other teams to come rescue him from this mess. I'm not going to dance around the issue at all. The Browns are the equivalent of the Sharknado franchise, in the sense that everyone knows that it's a giant spinning pile of chaos littered with defecating animals and third-rate talent. But we can't take our eyes off that jumbled mess and only get pleasure out of seeing it crash and burn. The reason I bring up the cursed cluster in Cleveland is that there's another team in the NFL that is eerily similar to this dysfunctional mess, and that is the proud heritage of America's team, or the Dallas Cowboys. Now I know there are plenty of you out there who may already be on social media ripping this take apart, but just hear me out. As of yesterday, following the Browns' win for the bragging rights in Ohio and the Cowboys' loss to the Bears, both teams are 6-7. and seven. Because of the disparity in conference lines, the Cowboys sit as divisional leaders in the worst division in football. Meanwhile, the Browns are on the outside looking in at the playoff picture. Both the Browns and Cowboys are owned by micromanagers who are egomaniacs more than likely to be entombed in the stadiums they have built for themselves. Jerry Jones is the owner and president of operations who loves controlling the talent that comes to Dallas. Meanwhile, Jimmy Haslam is a controversial manager who secretly has a closet obsession for firing coaches. Both teams have recently dealt with unreliable headaches at the wide receiver position. Cleveland with Josh Gordon, Antonio Callaway, and now obviously OBJ. Dallas for years with Des Bryant, and now with semi-relaxed Amari Cooper. In addition, aside from injury-prone playoff sniffer Tony Romo, both teams have not secured themselves with the franchise quarterback. Let me throw out a list of starting quarterbacks either team has courted over the last decade, and let's see if you can identify which jersey they were wearing. All right, here we go. Stephen McGee, Kevin Hogan, Matt Castle, Cody Kessler, Kellen Moore, Chandler Riggs, Josh McDermott, Jeffrey Morgan, Kerry Payton, Cooper Andrews. How many do you think you got? Pretty good? Well, spoiler alert, the first five were actually legitimate quarterbacks who were now defunct from the NFL. The last five were the most notable actors from the Walking Dead franchise. Come on, you couldn't tell the difference between Negan and Boise State's all-time leading passer. That's the generic crop these two teams have been sifting through for the past 10 years. And who's leading them now? Two guys who were monsters in college but have glaring holes in their game that make people hesitant to give them a max deal. The point I'm trying to make is that while the Cowboys may have their glory days of the 1990s, which in contrast, the Browns can only trace theirs back before the NFL was framed, both teams are performing well below their expectations this season. Both squads have outstanding individual talents on both sides of the ball, but cannot link together a string of solid victories. One team is the Hollywood showboat who had had their moment under the sun back when Doc Martens were trendy footwear, while the other team has been the laughingstock of professional sports for nearly 20 years. Regardless, both teams are loaded with talent and sit at 6-7 and seven with three weeks to go. Call it what you will, throw out your perspective and argument however you would like, but with the final games on the horizon, it's safe to say the rosters of both the Cowboys and the Browns could switch jerseys and nobody would notice. Finally, golfer Patrick Reed was caught cheating on Friday at the Hero World Challenge in the Bahamas, hashtag shocker, in which he approached his shot in a bunker and scraped sand away from his lie in the sand not once, but twice. Reed denied the action, saying, quote, I didn't feel it drag, but then when they brought it up to me, it definitely did drag some of the sand, and because of that, it's considered a two-stroke penalty. I think with a different camera angle, they would have realized that it was not from the side you would have seen with the backswing, it was not improving the lie because it was far enough away from the golf ball. 
Oh, bull hockey, Reed. Everyone knows you're lying through your teeth about this. Now, some of you who don't care about golf may say, this isn't that big of a deal. And you're right, it's not. We're griping about a guy who shaves grains of sand away to get a better shot from a bunker. There are bigger fish to fry. However, this behavior isn't new. Reed's history is littered with negative behavior. He has publicly said he hates his family and distanced himself from them. He was kicked off the golf team at the University of Georgia for stealing his teammate Scotty Cameron putters and other gear. He denied this by saying, no, the real reason I was kicked off was because of my history of DUIs. Oh, much better excuse. When he transferred to Augusta State University, multiple teammates accused him of reporting lower scores than he actually shot. He's picked fights with fans, argued with Ryder Cup teammates, and has alienated nearly every person who has greeted him. Sure, shaving a few grains of sand away is not the end of the world, but this isn't his first rodeo on the path of deception, and at the rate he's going, it's not going to shock me if sources report he's the drug dealer responsible for Lance Armstrong's HGH crimes. The man is the devil, Bobby, and acts caught on tape at the Hero World Challenge only reinforce the idea that he is sport's current greatest villain. We now shift to what matters this week, which, for this episode, concerns the idea of Rose having a thought, to which Dorothy Blanche and Sophia all reply in unison, congratulations. Yes, today we're going to be dissecting one of the greatest sitcoms in the modern era and its relationship to Hollywood on hardwood. And trust me, it will all come together. As of Sunday night, the Los Angeles Lakers are cruising through the NBA. Twitter is ablaze, already anointing them the title winners in June, and we haven't even made it to the atrocity known as the Christmas Day rivalry games. This Lakers team is the best ever. This team is looking like a real-life version of NBA Jam. 21-3 is the best start for LeBron of all time. The King is on a mission. While I am not discounting the Lakers are a very well-run team a quarter of the way through the season, there are two metrics I want to throw at you to bring you back to the real world. The first are the numbers 5-3, and three, and that is the Lakers' record against teams above 500 at this point in the season. Five wins, three losses. They are just barely performing better than the average team in this league when it comes to playing legitimate squads. 16 of their wins have come against teams who more likely will be booking their vacations to Destin in May rather than ramping up for playoff showdowns with conference rivals. 21 wins is awesome. But when three-quarters of them come against lottery teams, it does cause some eyebrows to be raised. The Lakers are the Ebenezer Scrooge of the NBA at this point in the season, which, for the record, this analogy came to fruition is while I'm typing this episode, my daughter is next to me watching the Muppet Christmas Carol with the old men Muppet Statler and Waldorf trying to scare Michael Caine with the haunted watches. The Lakers are Scrooge in the sense that who is Scrooge taking advantage of in the Charles Dickens classic? Who is he taking money from? Who is he bullying with his power? a lower-class family of rats who have a crippled son about to die from polio. He is beating up on the already beaten and enjoying those victories one penny at a time. And that's what the Lakers are doing, beating up on teams like the Chicago Bulls, led by power forward Bob Cratchit. The second number is much larger and even more compelling, and that is this, 59,180. That is the current total of minutes LeBron James has played in his entire career, regular season, playoffs, and finals combined. There are only two players in NBA history who have played more minutes, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Carl the Mailman Malone. In about three weeks, LeBron James will cross the 60,000-minute threshold, a place only Kareem and Carl made it to in their careers. 
And the problem with this record is that it usually has a corresponding negative consequence on the human body. If you look at both Malone and Kareem, both of them could have pulled a Paul Pierce and been gingerly escorted to the pregame warmups in wheelchairs. They were so broken down in their final games. Malone had a shoulder injury that derailed his final season, and Jabbar could never stay healthy for longer than eight games at a time. As physically phenomenal both of them were, neither had the durability to keep their shoes tied in the final moments. Now I'm sure there are plenty of you out there chirping at this response with the argument, but LeBron is only entering his 17th season. He has plenty of gas in the tank. This is crazy talk. Sure, LeBron is entering his 17th regular season on paper, but he has played an additional 10,049 playoff minutes, more than anyone else in NBA history, and an additional 2,099 NBA Finals minutes. Think about it. That's an additional five seasons of basketball just in the playoffs alone. He's played over half a season in NBA Finals games. Sure, he's entering his 17th season on paper, but his legs have been on the hardwood for 22 seasons. Just for comparison, do you know who else is in that sphere that is still active this season? Vince Carter, and he needs an IV drip of Metamucil in between timeouts. Plenty of people out there would like to play the card, but LeBron James plays by his own rules. And while yes, as evidence in the Utah matchup on Wednesday, the league obviously ignores blatant travel slash double dribbles done by the King, as well as allows him to host a sock hop on court during the game. But those are battles we've all realized are not worth fighting. I hate the argument that LeBron is a physical phenom who will transcend space and time to manipulate the world to his own pleasure. No, you know who plays by his own rules? Father Time, and he's undefeated. The clock is ticking on how much gas LeBron has left in his tank. Which brings us to this. In the 1980s, we were graced with four old ladies who gave us more insight to life than six idiots in a coffee house ever would. Yes, I'm referring to Rose, Dorothy, Blanche, and Sophia, four women who proved that wrinkles didn't matter on a silver screen. They were the grandmas I grew up watching even before I understood all the sexual innuendo Blanche reference in every other line of dialogue. For the record, I do stand by the theory that Blanche Devereaux is Barney Stinson's grandmother. Go ahead. Change my mind on that one. The Golden Girls were timeless classics and made their own imprint on pop culture. But sadly, they all met their makers. Estelle Getty in 2008 from dementia, B. Arthur in 2009 from cancer, and Rue McClanahan in 2010 from a brain hemorrhage. The only one left is Betty White, who is still making Hallmark movies and Fixident commercials and as far as I know, is the reincarnate of Dr. Manhattan. Betty White figuratively and literally transcends time and space and has more juice left in her tank than the Energizer Bunny. At this rate, it would not shock me if the 97-year-old got a gig on the Baywatch sequel. She is just that durable. The point I'm trying to make is that LeBron James is not Betty White and has no business thinking he can keep pace with the rest of this league. Sure, he's shown glimpses this first quarter of the season, but just because he's on cruise control beating up on Tiny Tim Cratchit does not mean he's going to be hoisting the Larry O'Brien trophy in June. If he sprains an ankle and is out for three months, or tweaks his back on an alley-oop and has to sit out 30 games, it's because LeBron is not Rose Nyland, and he's not getting any younger. I don't care if you don't agree with me, because this is my take on the LeBron James situation this season. And in the words of Sophia, Look, you didn't ask me for my opinion, but I'm old, so I'm giving it anyway. Thanks for listening to Brand Spanking New. 
will definitely be back next week, unlike Lane Kiffin at Florida Atlantic for their final bowl game. Oxford, Mississippi is where he's going to be sending all of his fan mail.